0: Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com.
1: Good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Um, My name is Jeremy Sandelson. I'm a partner here at Clifford Chance. And can I give you all. Uh, each and every one of you, a very warm welcome uh, to uh, our offices here. Um, I hope you all enjoyed um, the trip down here uh, this morning by riverboat. Uh, when I woke up this morning and saw it was raining, I felt very sorry for you and, in particular, for Julia, but the, sun, the gods clearly um, shine as brightly as the sun, uh, and it looks like another enjoyable day here in Canary Wharf. Um, Before we start, could I ask you uh, please to do a bit of housekeeping, which involves um, you turning off your uh, mobiles and Blackberries, because they tend to um, interfere with the AV system, and also, uh, boringly but necessarily, to comply with um, health and safety regulations. I need to tell you, like the sort of British Airways steward, that we have two exits here and two there, and in the event of fire, just run towards the river as fast as you can. Now I know that uh, most of you gathered here today uh, actually work in the creative um, industries and creative industries and law uh, don't normally have um, that much uh, in common, but my friends um, who actually do work uh, in your industry, who work in the media, tell me that every summer uh, they receive a large number of job applications from students looking for placements uh, whose parents uh, happen to be lawyers. And for our part, um, our, student, um, placement, our, our summer student placement scheme uh, also has uh, within it a fair sprinkling of children whose parents work in the media. And this particular common interest, it struck me therefore, provides me with a perfect excuse to talk just a little bit about Clifford Chance and the legal industry. Um, although there are now some 70,000 people working here, uh, when we moved to Canary Wharf uh, at the turn of the century from the more conservative city of London, it was considered an extremely bold, or some of our competitors might say, uh, mad move. But as far as we were concerned, it was just uh, yet another example of where Clifford Chance's readiness uh, to break with tradition, to break with convention, was the right thing to do. Uh, This firm um, has a huge ambition uh, to lead our own industry and that objective has really driven our own innovation uh, in a number of different ways. We have, uh, unusually for a law firm, uh, 29 offices in no less than 21 uh, different countries and uh, I think with total honesty we can lay the claim to having revolutionized the global legal market ten years ago when we undertook a major merger with a German and US firm To create what really was the first truly international law firm. And that move was very much based on a belief that the legal industry needed to innovate. It needed to find a better way of meeting our clients' needs for an integrated and high-quality global uh, legal service. And I think looking back over the last few years, I mean, we certainly have not sat on our laurels. We've continued to innovate uh, in how we deliver our services to clients, how we recruit and train our people, and how we support our operations. We're the first law firm, for example, to outsource and offshore some of our back office. We remain the only law firm with our own legal resource in India. And we're very proud as a firm to have been really quite instrumental in developing standards in important emerging markets such as climate trading, uh, microfinance, and even Islamic finance. Um, this firm takes its pro bono work extremely seriously. We contribute hundreds and thousands, literally hundreds and thousands of hours, to many uh, different organisations in the voluntary sector. Um, I think one of our particular signature schemes is, is highly innovative. We support a not-for-profit charity called Law for All, where not only do we succumb 20 lawyers a year to their two legal aid centres in Brentford and Ealing, But we also provide them with full management, IT and HR support, uh, thereby removing from them the burdens of running their practice on a budget which is almost certainly going to be cut uh, yet further. And this sort of innovation is really underpinned by a mindset that constantly assesses how we think we can use our legal know-how, our knowledge, the vast repositories of experience and expertise across our many offices to secure a better, more cost-efficient outcome for our clients. And our commitment, I think, to innovation has, I'm pleased to say, been recognized by you in the form of the uh, Financial Times Innovative Lawyers Awards, uh, where we fared uh, better over the past three years than any of our competitors. I normally only mention awards when we um, win them, but that particular one, which was innovative you know, in a way, as it was launched by the FT to examine the legal industry, is one we take very seriously. And our track record in this area is a matter of real pride for the many of us who have worked for so many years at Clifford Chance, as is equally the fact that Britain and British innovation continues, to my mind, to lead the legal sector generally. I think law remains one of those very few examples where it is a truly successful British export and the practitioners in London you know, really do establish what I think is the benchmark for what's possible anywhere in the world. So it's very pleasant to be standing here thinking about innovation and knowing that so far we have managed to repulse the attacks from some of our competitors in other areas. But that's probably enough um, about us. Um, I'm fairly sure you're um, all much more interested in Coga de Mer than corporate law. And I'm going to hand over at that point, therefore, to Nick Barron to begin what I'm sure will be a very stimulating uh, session. Thank you very much. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Thank you very much. Jeremy, um, you proved the link between Clifford Chance and the creative industries, But actually, um, Clifford Chance has been one of the most progressive uh, forces in the creative industries in terms of uh, working with the IP system to streamline it um, and unleash innovation in that sector. Um, and unleashing innovation in that sector, Uh, unleashing innovation is what we're all here today to discuss. Um, This will be about British innovation, uh, where we stand in the world, how we can compete going forward. It's in association, uh, kindly thanks to Jaguar Land Rover and ourselves Edelman. Um, I'm going to start briefly with a film from uh, Jaguar, but first of all we're going to just set the scene and introduce the panel. Innovation is fresh thinking which creates value. it's a nebulous concept, perhaps, but Britain's a leader in it, nonetheless. Uh, in terms of Twitter and Facebook, we're the world leaders in innovating uh, new applications. In terms of video games, companies like Facebook have worked out how to, to make money. Uh, sorry, Playfish have worked out how to make money from selling digital roses to um, people on uh, Facebook all around the world. In the biotech sector, uh, there is a huge innovative cluster in Cambridge. In the motorsport sector and the spin-offs. Uh, There are huge clusters uh, in and around Oxfordshire. And in the space industry, uh, we've worked out how to make um, cheap satellites from what amounts to more than uh, tins of baked beans and have built a uh, 10% market share of the space industry as a result. And even in the financial services sector, um, we've uh, been very innovative. Uh, The question is whether um, uh, in the right ways. Um, So only 10% of innovation is captured by R&D. Um, that's thanks to our friends at Nesta um, technology clearly and, and patents uh, are an important part of the innovation story but so too is design, so too are processes and, and, and perhaps most importantly uh, ideas are at the heart of innovation um, it's very hard to measure um, and, and we beat ourselves up that perhaps we're not, not as good as, uh, as we might be about it, um, we had a bit of a gloomy uh, prognosis on, of uh, the British communication sector but actually we've been great at uh, innovating and selling those ideas around the world. The question is whether we've managed to turn those ideas into world-beating bus- those ideas and innovations into world-beating businesses. So it's fundamental to the knowledge economy and a healthy and dynamic society. We look to innovation to solve greener, uh, to deliver a greener, happier and wealthier economy. Um, but if innovation creates value, do our values incentivize the right kinds of innovation to meet these big aims? And are we, as a people, brave enough fast enough, creative enough, skilled enough, diverse enough, and most importantly, persuasive enough uh, to take on the world. We've got five experts who represent innovation in all of its glory. Um, So I'm going to introduce introduce you to them now. Melanie Howard, first of all, she's the Executive Chair of the Future Foundation, which is a consumer and business trends think tank. She co-founded in 1996 to support support innovation uh, by providing market insights to business. Um, Next, we have... um, uh, ben Schwartz, who's the founder of CTO Innovation Consulting he started off in the telecommunications sector uh, and now consults with telecoms and media organisations he's worked across big brands like Orange and Small startups, so he, uh, he's seen innovation from, from both big and small perspective Sam Roddick is the founder of Coco de Mer uh, originally an erotic emporium now a global brand which has catalyzed the whole new industry of high quality sex aids and finally Dayan Sijich uh, is the director of the Design Museum uh, he is, uh, it's an institution that's championed, uh, championed innovative design in Britain since it's founded uh, in the uh, 1980s. And as a leading writer and curator, he's ideally placed to help us identify Britain's current standing in the world of design. So with that, we'll have the Jaguar Land Rover video.
3: In the 25 years that I've been here, this is the most exciting time. We're here in the main engineering centre. Um, here in Gaydon, edge of uh, Warwickshire. This is the uh, home for over 4,000 engineers. This facility here in the UK is, is a completely bespoke facility where you can actually take a car from the design studio and drive it straight out around the test track.
4: The CO2 challenge is, is, is probably our biggest challenge. As a, as a planet, we've got to reduce our carbon emissions by about 80% by 2050.
3: We're the only manufacturer in the world that actually uses press sheet aluminium to deliver lightweight structures allowing us to then take the weight out of the vehicles and allow us to have smaller engines with the same performance. The automotive industry has got more competitive year on year and it's more competitive now than it's ever been. So effectively we have to invest and push technology innovation at an ever-increasing rate even just to stand still. We've actually got the world's first 3D, what we call cave, where you can actually fully go inside a car right at the very concept phase and so some of the tools we've got are absolutely industry-leading.
2: This is the most advanced
1: facility in the automotive industry.
2: Those glasses, uh, apart from looking attractive on John, every time John moves his head the data will move to give you a one-to-one realistic view. This facility allows us to get cars to market quicker, increases the quality of the cars that we send to market, reduces warranty costs, which makes it a happier customer and the design and engineering becomes more environmentally sustainable.
3: The best part of working here in the UK is just working with the enthusiastic engineers that we have. The desire for technology and innovation never ceases to impress me. The innovation they deliver day in, day out is just absolutely stunning and the excitement of what new piece of technology we're going to develop next.
4: We are living now in a very connected world and the next generation uh, of car buyers that are coming up behind us, you know, they expect to be able to to game and to socially uh, interact and to do all of those things and they'll expect to do that
3: in, in cars as well. The UK is renowned for technical innovation and you see this within our vehicles, we're, we're fantastic inventors.
4: The culture of innovation in this country is, is important and the, and, the, and, the, and the incentives that government give is, is important to, to give people the motivation to go and form those collaborative links construct those 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 projects that they wouldn't have otherwise have, uh, uh, have done that will result in more innovative products in the future and that's the exciting part for me where you where you sit we myself and a, and a couple of a couple of wacky guys you know in an, in, an, in an office look at the future co2 challenge and we just sketch away and we go what would happen if we do this and people would say well, you know we, we thought at the time you know, maybe it's too soon to do, to do it or maybe people would never believe an electric drive jag would work and we just said Let's do it. And, and we did it and, it, tra- and it, and it's transformed opinions inside and
2: outside the company. And that's been the most exciting thing for me. With that, I'll ask Melanie, first of all. Um, okay. What do you think the elements are of a healthy innovation ecosystem? And do we have them?
0: Yes. Um, I think I've got my innovation-tinted specs on today. Um, I see innovation everywhere, literally, um, in all of the sectors. And I think we were just hearing about uh, innovation in philanthropy, which, of course, has been a huge... Uh, area of change in the third, what used to be called the third sector, I think now to be known as the civil society, of finding new ways of contributing to causes in a way that brings skills and volunteering as well as, as money, and that's happening all over the world. Um, but one of the things I've been thinking about recently, uh, which may give us a little bit of a new focus, I've been working with the Advertising Association who are trying to rebrand and reinvent advertising with a, with a big initiative called Front Foot. And we've had some workshops around that. And one of the things that has been brought to my attention is that actually the media and marketing environment in this country is a very important part of our healthy innovation ecosystem, because we have a mature, uh, lively, many multi-channel environment in which new ideas come quickly to prominence, get discussed. Uh, you know, will either gather speed and momentum and, and go somewhere or not. And I think that speed of communication that we have and the smallness, in a way, of our, of our media environment, but the richness of it, I think, is a very important contributor to uh, the, one of the reasons why the UK is so strong uh, in this area. And I, I liked your definition um, of, of sort of adding value, but I think also um, innovations are very, very... Uh, widely, I was going to say overused but seeing as we're all here to talk about it Mm -hmm. um, maybe that's a bit dangerous but just to to recognise how many different directions we can turn the innovation lens uh, on Um, you know you were talking obviously we're talking about commercial world beating products Um, I've talked about philanthropy, social innovation I'm sure we're going to hear quite a lot more about that and and that's one of the areas I'm most excited about already because as we know um, social businesses and enterprises have been burgeoning in this country. We've got uh, latest government estimates suggest 60 to 70,000, um, you know, not-for-profit or partly-profit businesses um, have already sprung up uh, to, to sort of recognise need in, at local level, in international aid, in all sorts of arenas, bringing social investment into solving problems in uh, all sorts of arenas. And, and, you know, I think that there's... Uh, no doubt we'll talk about big society as well, but I think there is already a big society in that respect of people being able to feel much more entrepreneurial in these social spaces as well as the commercial spaces. Um, And I suppose the other thing that we're noticing as a future foundation, this is from a commercial perspective, is that we've been doing some work looking at the future of insight and there's actually what people who used to be called market research managers ten years ago um, who were our clients, who, who we used to commission research or they would commission research, and they would have that information about consumers and and products and attitudes and all the rest of it. Um, Five years ago, they suddenly all got renamed insight managers, but essentially they were the same people doing quite similar jobs. And what's happening now is they're all becoming insight and innovation managers. And what that's telling us is that it's not enough to know information about how the world's changing. Uh, Actually, what the demand is is how do you use that so I'm pretty convinced that there's a big community of uh, researchers, thinkers, innovators within businesses and organisations of all kinds. Even our charity clients now have innovation teams for exactly the reasons that, that I've been saying. So I think there's a, it's, it's much more of a recognised sort of function defined in many different ways in different organisations. And people are actually investing money in ensuring that they've got the kind of knowledge and understanding to sort of prime the pumps. I think sometimes that doesn't get through to the areas of the smaller entrepreneurs, the smaller businesses, who would probably like to have that same information to spark up their ideas. But but generally, I think there is a a lot to feel very positive about. Um, And I suppose looking ahead and thinking about what do we need, um, I'm a little bit concerned, and I'm hoping we're going to hear a bit more about this later on, um, that there may be this sort of idea of trying to encapsulate and and make innovation a solid thing. And part of what the excitement around innovation is is about collaboration. It should be about multidisciplinary working. It should be about bringing different sectors and different types of knowledge together. And that can't be done through uh, too much systematisation of processes. I think it's got to be open. It's got to be flexible. And I think if we allow the sort of spirit of entrepreneurship and inventiveness that is, I, I believe, part of the, the good part of our, our national character to uh, continue to feed in solving problems, whether they're commercial, whether they're at a local level. I think um, the future's looking pretty bright.
2: And do, we have, do you think we have the sources of finance to facilitate that kind of a
5: cooperative, invest, uh, uh, cooperative investment?
0: Well, I think it's really beginning to take off. I mean, I've been working with a social business um, enterprise hub called Clearly So for a while, and one of the big challenges has been getting the investment in the social business sector Um, And what's beginning to happen now is that they're getting interest from high net worth individuals and banks who want to meet the people with ideas and start, um, at least for some of their portfolio, making some direct investments. And we've seen that with um, Ashoka and other uh, mechanisms and also direct investment in businesses such as the Ethical Property Company. So I think we're getting to a point where there are... It, there, is, there are more social um, entrepreneurs who've, who've made some money perhaps, or uh, entrepreneurs who've, who've been successful and want to reinvest that back through some of these less formal routes. Um, so I, I, Again, that's part of the ecosystem to me is, is more direct uh, sources of investment. And I think one of the important things going forward is, 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 is creating maps for people who've got ideas about how to get to some sources of funding and to meet the angels that they, they need to.
2: Ben, you're based in France, um, uh, and so who better to ask than uh, than about the role of the state in all of this. Um, We tend to have a fairly reductive debate about innovation and the state's role in all of this, uh, whether it's a question of lowering taxes or increasing subsidy to to innovators. What other tools do you think governments have to stimulate innovation?
5: Well, first, I mean, the first part of the question that you started with is uh, the role of the state in innovation. If if the state sets out an objective to create innovation, it will fail. I mean, you can't declare innovation. I have this little pen that I prepared my notes on from a company, and it says on it, innovation that works, um, which has a really interesting message in it because it means, obviously, that most innovation doesn't work. Um, So I think uh, the short answer is they can do something very useful, is create what the previous speaker was talking about—an ecosystem, create the environment, create so that then innovation can happen. But innovation is not something that can be decreed; it has to, it has to fit in. Um, to elaborate a bit on on, on the, what the state can do, I think there's some there's some there's pretty good examples from France, as you say. Um, we talked a lot about the in, internet. Uh, the internet is never really tr- attributed as a state innovation, but actually. Um, and it wasn 't. it was universities that really got it together, but um, it would have only been possible, uh, it was only possible because of the American state that in, in invested a lot of money over many years. There was something called DARPAnet i don 't know if you guys know about that. It was in the '70s. Um, so that came in indirectly. But the French example, for those who visited France in the '80s will remember a thing called the minitel Yes. It was the the French example. It was way before the internet. Uh, The the initial work started as early back as the 70s, but it actually was rolled out um, in the 80s. Uh, The first uh, proper launch was, I think, 1981 or 82. It was a a free device, a a box about that big, that connected through the telephone line to various servers. Um, and offered a whole world of services. And France, for a couple of years, thought hey, we're leading the world. I mean, we have a whole nation of uh, people doing electronic transactions, people were buying train tickets. Actually, I will find this interesting, what really made it successful was uh, the chat rooms with uh, what they call the Minitel tail I don't know how you, pronounce it, how you translate that, but pink mini uh, is what really made it take off in a big way. Uh, and then when that went out of fashion, um, it kind of slowly started dying off, and it hasn't died even today. There's still uh, about four, five hundred boxes out there. It rose up to about six, hundred, six million boxes in, at its peak in 92, and that's about when the internet came around, for those of you who remember. I mean, for most of us had our first email addresses in the mid-90s. Um, it's an example of something that really went huge and now kind of disappeared, so it's a big debate. Was it successful or was it just a giant flop? Uh, France was ahead of the world in terms of the digital age and the use of electronic media and stuff like that. Uh, But because of the Minitel, France ended up losing a couple of years because then when the Internet came along, there was a sort of resistance and French people weren't quite prepared to because the Minitel, for example, had a a transaction system where you would pay through your phone bill and that was never possible in the early days of the Internet. So French people took a lot longer than, say, British people to actually start buying things on the Internet. So So the the end result was probably negative.
2: And the comparison then with the BBC, which um, uh, uh, was described slightly Uh, earlier I I raised
5: my hand about five times this morning... um, (laughs) Uh, about the BBC thing, I think it was a very sort of uh, downbeat (laughs) talk because I think the BBC should be trumpeting the iPlayer. In my industry I I consult in everything to do with digital TV and convergence and and, uh, the strategy and technology of that and the iPlayer is the example that's used everywhere throughout the world. Everybody, when you want to say this thing that's very trendy uh, in my area is called over-the-top content the example is uh, BBC's iPlayer and how successful it was first on the PC and then when it went on to Virgin. Um, so, so, so just to talk about that for a second, I think um, it's a real shame the BBC don't have a consulting firm or something that's part of the BBC that could go and then steam. they could have steamrolled the whole world, and made the iPlayer an international standard if they'd wanted. Mm. Um, but obviously that's not part of their, they're part of the government, I suppose, or an extension of the government, so they wouldn't do that.
2: And in, um, in, terms of, in terms of innovation creating value, and you held, held up the pen as an example of an innovation hopefully that does work, but um, do, we, do we have the value system in place to reward good innovation? Do we reward the, and incentivize the right kind of innovators to do the right kind of innovation?
5: You told me you were going to ask me that question, <laughs> and um, I've <I'm> been <laughs> thinking it. about it ever since. Yeah. And my answer is it's a very good question because I don't really have a very good answer to it, so it must be a good question. I, I, I don't really think it's possible. I mean, the short answer is no, uh, because um, if we knew what was the right innovation, we wouldn't have to, we wouldn't have to go through all these processes. We'd just uh, actually order somebody, you go and build me this now. Oh, but I'm talking about outcomes
2: rather than innovations themselves. So are we, Are we? do we have structure in place to uh, I mean, build a, the new green economy, for
5: example? I, I'm a bit of a, um, I feel unhappy about my situation because I'm a kind of left-wing kind of guy, but I, I have a very liberal, ultra-liberal view on that. I think it's only the markets that can tell. I hate saying this, but... <laughs> In this case I have to, it's, uh, it's not for government or anybody else to determine the success uh, of something, it's, it's for users. Um, and uh, just to, to, to finish off on something we haven't covered, maybe the other speakers will, but we, none of us have actually talked much apart, apart from you about what innovation is, and I think one thing that's fundamentally missing and that can help answer this is, innovation must be associated to a function, something must, must be used for a certain purpose, it must enable something that either was not possible before or that was not possible very well before to be done better. If it's not associated with a the function, then, then it's just sitting in a cupboard somewhere gathering dust. So um, the, the, the final judge can only be the actual use, when it's put to use. You know, In a laboratory, in a test, in a demo, something can look absolutely wonderful and serve no purpose whatsoever. And there's, there's like a zillion examples like that. And just to finish what I think to what the government could and should be doing, Um, I'm, uh, I'm really impressed with what the Americans are doing, I think, in terms of innovation. And Obama and his green initiative... And okay, America's a country where you just do it, you know, tell people to do it, give them some money and it all happens. Here it would probably take longer, have lots of cups of tea to decide and, and meetings and so on. But what if we could get the ball rolling and I think the new government has you know has, is in a honeymoon period and could actually push some things in through pretty violently, but I've answered the wrong word, pretty forcefully. Um, uh, then, the, the, then I can answer your question. More interesting is it would actually change completely the parameters for measuring success. It wouldn't be old school technology by some flash new technology would be more what impact it has on society or the reduction of impact it has on society. And that kind of thing is somewhere I think a government could get involved and should get involved and should get, enforce the regulators to, to, to be involved with in sort of greening the whole innovation area. And I think there's a big open boulevard for the new government to, to go into. and to go back to the question of, from the very beginning of the talk, which I was a bit disappointed because you, you, you stole my punchline by not talking about the brain drain. Mm. Um, I am the brain drain because I'm actually British and I've been living in France for 20 years. Um, and I think it would, be, it, it would be important for England, Britain, UK to, to sort of be a model again for the world because, uh, again, I think what, what the Americans are doing is pretty lightweight compared to what could be done okay. in terms of changing the parameters for okay. measuring success. Well, we might come back to the
2: Brain change question, but later on. Sam, um, you represent um, uh, commercial uh, acumen applied for an activist cause. You wanted to ch- change the world by running a business, by running an innovative business. So, Do you want to tell us well, your ba- experience?
6: Basically, I wanted to change the way we as a society relate to sex. I wanted to have a look at our social sexual identity and challenge it. And it's a huge, massive industry. And I read a book called *The History of Halls*, which really politicised me sexually. And um, I come from a big activist and feminist background. And the only way that I could actually do that was to create or innovate um, uh, something that uh, a platform for myself, in order that I could have a dialogue about this subject. And really that was a commercial platform and that's um, really what I wanted to do because this sex industry as a whole is uh, really an underground industry it's not really kind of seen as legitimate and I wanted to legitimize an act we all do we all engage with and hopefully we engage with some heart and I wanted to put that onto um, the, the platform and it was very difficult because it was changing the way that we relate And obviously, when people buy for sex, they're not doing it in a comfortable manner. They're making themselves extraordinarily vulnerable. They're engaging in um, conversations with people that are highly uncomfortable. So therefore, it's usually avoided, done on the internet, or behind closed doors where they're not really coming forward with any true consumer demands. You can tell this because within the sex industry, toys Are sold under novelty items, which I know you guys are all legal. I don't know if you are all legal guys, um, but if you sell an item under a novelty item, it means it's not intended for use. There are no safety and health regulations around uh, products that you literally are using in the same degree as a medical product. It's going into the most delicate parts of our body. So, therefore, The industry, being as profitable as it can to make the the biggest margins, tend to use plastics that are banned. So they're highly toxic. They're not used um, uh, in pet uh, toys, and they're not used in uh, baby toys, and they're not really intended to engage with. A dog is not supposed to chew it. Right? So essentially, you're not supposed to put it in the most intimate parts of the body. This is an issue where you start to realize that as a society, we're so uncomfortable um, with this subject, we're so incapable of having a conversation, that really we're putting ourselves in danger. Right. In a massive level. Our politicians will not hold up the beacon and fight for the cause, saying, actually, we do need safety and health regulations, because which politician is going to hold the parapet and say, this is my issue? He'll be either laughed at or deemed as a pornographer. So So, so, so
2: in terms of the innovation story, then was the was the brand message the was that your chief innovation
6: well what i wanted to do was essentially make something a pro uh, i wanted to make products that were beautiful i've had my products in the vna museum i've been accepted in uh, Testino. i've had every major kind of photographer photograph my products i wanted to make them so beautiful that people the the explicitness of them was camouflaged, and these are products where you can use their sex toys, you can use them in bondage, you can wear them, you can wear pieces of jewellery, and I wanted to basically um, create something to change our not only our emotional relationship to sex, but our visual reference to sex, and create products that were so sophisticated that they were accepted by Vogue, they were accepted on, on TV, so we could have intelligent conversations, because the only true conversation around sex that really should be um, uh, uh, prevalent is the issue of consent. You can't have a sexually liberated society without having a proper dialogue about consent. Um, So that's in terms of what I did. I had to redesign every single product. I became a manufacturer of probably about 90 different lines and if anybody knows about business essentially you know you go into a wholesale product of one kind of line. You either do lingerie or you either do cosmetics or you either do phones or you either do the internet or digital. I had to do cushions, I had to do cosmetics, I had to do um, spanking products made out of wood, silver, <laughs> jade, I had to make um, leather pieces, I had to make uh, furniture, I had to make and so I had to, because there was nothing out there, there was Nothing that represented me as a woman, on how I emotionally related to uh, my sex life.
2: But were you, were you innovating alone, or were you working with partners? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
6: this is, this
7: is different.
6: <laughs> the truth was everybody lies about sex so you can't do market research because what people are, they're terrified of judgement they're terrified of being kind of cornered as a pervert or actually thought of as too vanilla so like, so you're in this situation where everybody lies so the only true reference is the self right. Right? so um, I have this whole concept with is if you want it somebody else is going to want it because we're not actually unique Um, So, from that process, I had to actually, when I went out to people like Saatchi and Saatchi found out about what I was doing, obviously coming from a Mecca retail background, Anita Roddick's daughter, they were like, oh my god, Sam Roddick has come up with a retail concept, I want to know what it is. They phoned me up, I just basically was telling everybody I've got this idea, I want to open up this sex shop, and actually people started flooding towards me. Then I had to visualise what I meant by doing these incredible mood boards, which I even had to show to Shaftesbury, my landlord, who they all were interested in the concept, but they all feared it, right? Because nobody, this was just 10 years ago, nobody had done anything like I had done before. Um, so, uh, so I had to really kind of demonstrate and from that I collaborated with some really quite incredible creatives and I had to work with them very tightly because people's understanding of sex is very tight. We've had the porn industry broke off from Hollywood in the 70s and therefore it became its own industry so it became very very consumer driven and since then the understanding of sex is very kind of narrow. It, it is very prepackaged with a look which tends to come with like bare fannies and Plastic boobs and you know collagen lips and women who don't look too happy. And so, but ultimately, there, it, it, there is not a huge variety to what's on offer. So um, you know, but what I had to do is take the sex out of it, and I had to say, look, I want a product that looks like William Morris, who is turn of the century textile designer, but I want cocks in it, right? So that's how that's how I did. I took. I took, I took um, things that we had reference to that were beautiful, like a lot of antiques, um, uh, or carvings, or like, for instance, symbolism throughout history. Like I took the snake that's eating its tail, which is a symbol for rebirth, and I carved it on a jade cock ring. And that then adds a kind of legitimacy, because it has a story of... Um, it has a story of a reference point that, uh, uh, to a, from a psychological background or, or to a cultural kind of a, a reference. These symbols are cross cultural. Okay. Thank you. Okay.
2: Dan, Dan if I can turn to you now. I don't know if uh, any coca de Mayo products speak in the design museum yet. they <laughs> yeah, have. I <laughs> I bet,
6: yeah. But
2: I think
8: Simon's very eloquently explained why it is that design is what makes innovation work. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you actually use the word design several times, and you talked about how design happens. And, to me, that's what makes design so extraordinary. It's, it's both about our emotional values, but our commercial ones too. Um, we don't actually have a pen marked designs. design as what makes innovation work on, so is a design museum shop as yet, We um, you should definitely do one. I think design is what made the innovation of Apple work. Many companies had some of the technology, some of the ideas about making a smartphone or an iPad. Apple put it together in a very intelligent way to make an object which makes innovation work jolly well. There was something, actually, I thought, rather humbling about that Jaguar film. Here are these amazingly gifted, talented men, or men, wearing suits, who would never be seen dead in Shoreditch House, talking about real innovation, real manufacture, real products. Um, They create jobs, they create objects which reflect on what it is to have a British car, what it is to create British jobs. And yet, of course, they're owned by an Indian manufacturer. So many of the things, that, and I, I always feel well uncomfortable really about using the word British design. Um, one of the great icons of Britishness in design was the original Mini, which was of course designed by Alec Sigonis, a fantastic engineer who was born in Turkey of Greek descent who came to London as a refugee. If we think about the contemporary generation of Bentleys, what would be more English and the Bentley? Of course, owned by Volkswagen and the design teams led by a Belgian by a Brazilian, their last job was for Škoda in the Czech Republic, (laughs) is that British design? To describe Jonathan Ive, who actually made the Apple uh, transformation possible, to to say what he does as British design on the basis that was born in this country, educated here, would be a travesty and embarrassment. I find it very hard, maybe there is such a thing as design in Britain, but maybe not British design. Maybe national identities aren't terribly helpful for these things. I've always felt that actually cities, are much better at creating these innovations that we depend on. Um, I think there's such a thing as design in london it 's had this extraordinary ecology ever since William Morris ever since the days when the first art school was set up here, which provided this kind of amazing environment for licensed descent for people to go and spend their time. At the arts will then come out and do things like make videos or make movies or become artists. And maybe that ecology is being exhausted rather because the art schools are now being expanded beyond the natural limits, and they're not quite what they once were. And I think cities have a a lifespan during which they have this creative spark. And then maybe there's another city that comes up behind them to take over. Every month or so, we get another delegation to design museum from places like Shenzhen or Kuala Lumpur or uh, Seoul coming to us to say, we think design and the creative industry, which London does so well, are fantastically important. We want to do it too, and very soon they will be doing it better than we are. And what are the things that makes London succeed as a place which goes on reinventing itself? Um, its size, its openness, its readiness to let people get on with things, um, its willingness we'll to take chances. And those are precious qualities which we need to say. And
2: are there any if London's time passes? Are there any British cities that you point to um, <coughs> who might be willing to, who might be ready to step That's
8: the problem, of course. I mean, there was a time when most national, nation states had several centers. Um, in the 19th century, Manchester had its stock market, its national newspapers, its opera house. Glasgow had the same, Birmingham was the same. It would be hard to see now an alternative city in the UK that could take on London's world city mantle. Maybe no other city in Europe could do it. Maybe we're looking at Shanghai or Shenzhen. What's so, what we've lost so much really is the ability for small cities to make a difference. Um, the most innovative school of design in the 20th century was the Bauhaus, which moved from one city to another, but its golden era was in Dessau, which is a city of 70,000 people, and it changed the world. It's hard to think of that happening now.
2: Do you think that's because cities need a certain scale in terms of to generate a network that breeds ideas? or?
8: Maybe whole languages do. Um, to be a filmmaker in Danish is the
2: uphill struggle. Mm. So I think for reasons of time, we will uh, turn straight to the audience for questions.
9: I don't think that what you're talking about is just an issue about political innovation. I mean, for example, the rise of individualism, and just before my father died, I asked him what broke up his wonderful village, living, huge, extended family, everyone doing stuff for themselves, and his word was education think about what that means. And I think, you know, I mean, that was a bit of a ooh, to somebody that he'd made sure had a good education. But I think, you know, there's a lot going on here in how our lives are, and it's not just about the political settlement. And so, yes, of course, civil society is important in various ways. We need to collaborate more in in different ways, but I think we've got to be very real about the difference in people's lives and and what will will work. Um, And I also slightly worry that the social impact bond model, that's great, but It's a little bit like R&D in business. You've still got to enable resources to go to the truly innovative, and the social impact bond requires that you're already proven a little bit. And I I worry that there's not going to. Where is this kind of R&D for actually making real change? So it's a little techie, but but these are my concerns. But just the one area where I think we've slightly missed, and particularly following the finance crisis, is quite critical, is actually innovation in our. Business models and corporate forms. We're talking about innovation in the social sector, that's fine. Obviously, the Roddicks were hugely innovative in looking at how you can kind of reconfigure the way that businesses work, not just social businesses, but really right into that whole space. And still, while we talk about innovation, we still have a monolith of one particular form which is held up and and uh, is, is pretty much the only thing you can do. There are so many different ways of, of looking at how you access finance, of altering shareholding, et etc. Et so I think innovation there is actually part of creating a resilient big economy, let's say, that works for everybody and is collaborative. So I'd like to see that as being one area that, that we shouldn't miss.
10: Thank you. Uh, Norman Lewis. Um, I, I think um, I'm slightly perturbed by a lot of what I've heard this afternoon and perhaps if I could just challenge the panel quite strongly um, uh, on, on, on some of the stuff that's being said. Because I think it all, almost began with you, Nick, when you make the point that only 10% of, of innovation is R&D or is related to, to R&D. And it seems to me that everything today is innovation except R&D. Um, you know, innovation, if you go onto Amazon and search for books with innovation in the title, I've been tracking this for the past uh, five years, Five years ago, there were about um, 14,000 books. If you do a search today, there's 113,000 books. It seems like there's a lot of innovation in book publishing,
9: yes.
10: uh, a lot of books about innovation, but where's the innovation? Um, you know, really, when, you, when it comes down to it, and I mean, what we just heard about the big society, I mean, the big innovation there is that you've taken one word, big, which is kind of... Slightly meaningful society, which is slightly meaningful. Put the two together, and it's just for me, it's a completely meaningless concept. This kind of notion of engineered social networking, um, just phenomenal. Um, It really bothers me uh, this whole idea. But my real question is about R&D, because I am very concerned about where the, the legacy of the next. Scientific revolution is going to come from when today we are investing less in R&D than we ever have done in the past for the past 15 to 20 years R&D spending as a percentage of GDP has been going down, I think the only country where it's remained steady has been Japan in every other country this country in particular it's been going down and you know, in, in contrast to what Benjamin was saying, talking about the state go back to the post-war legacy of the US if you look at um, What the American government did with respect to the space race, for example, the inspiration that they created in terms of the creations of new industries that came out of the space race, um, which absolutely phenomenal. Generations of new scientists, mathematicians, etc. that came out of that. Where is that vision today? There is no vision. You know the big vision we have today is big society, where you know we're going to solve health problems not by innovating in healthcare, uh, but by getting people to join social networks, getting them to join social networks. Please, this is this is a joke.
2: I don't think it's very helpful to argue the toss over whether it should be about R&D or other forms of innovation. Clearly, they're all important. It's all part of the mix. The point is, the reality is, innovation is much broader than simple R&D, and that's not my view. That's the view of Nesta, which exists to promote innovation in this country. So, um, I mean, I think in in terms of how we can stimulate R&D, which I agree is a very, very important question,
5: perhaps we can turn to to Ben for that one. Yeah, just uh, also for the first question, I mean, something very... um, Obvious and sounds silly being said, that, but obviously, innovation isn't always good. I mean, the atom bomb, I think, was an innovation too, uh, in its own right, and it killed a lot of people. Um, and uh, about um, the space race, of course, it looks all um, pretty uh, romantic and, and in- incredible at the moment, but in a. seems to be my microphone. Can you still hear me? Um, uh, in a much smaller scale, what the British regulator and therefore government has been doing with a digital switchover, much less sexy than the space race, um, but who knows in a couple of years' time what's going to come out of that. And I think that is an example of uh, you know, something happening, you know, forcing... A lot of people were very pissed off about having to change their TV sets and something. It did require some political initiative. It came actually mainly from Europe, it was a European initiative, but I think the British government was, was, was more forceful okay. than some others. So just, just an example.
2: going back to the question of R&D then, Yeah, well, well, all I was
0: going to say was um, I I really don't disagree with you. And and to me, one enormous challenge for this country is the whole investment in science, scientific knowledge, and our suspicion of science as a solution, uh, which is an attitudinal thing. And again, I think there's a lot that the media, you know, we we know all about this because we we know that people who cover science and, and inventions aren't necessarily people who actually understand the science. We're so conflicted about climate change, and what it really is, what it means, what the answers are. Consumers who would love to do the right thing don't know what the right thing is, because all the, everybody's disagreeing with you. you know, we, it's, a, it's a very difficult area. But the only point I would make is that, Deja, uh, um, you, you said it's got to be around design, Is about innovation, and you're saying innovation's about R&D. And all I would say is, actually, that's right. But there's so many other ways of bringing innovation into everybody's lives, that aren't just based on what used to be the sort of monoliths of, you know, it used to be that innovation was only a very specialist activity, and I think part of what we're saying here is that we can all innovate in lots of different ways, but it's not, and and, and this is where I take issue a bit with um, Philip's uh, assertions, that it's it's not an either, we're not in an either-or world anymore, it's not individualism versus collectivism, it's, you know we 've got to bring these things together, and that to me is collaboration that's exactly what I said and, and understanding um, knowledge but that, no actually what I would just, what, I, what I felt that you were saying is that we didn 't have groups and networks before and we 've now got to create them I think that 's always been the way that human society has operated, um, but anyway, I think collaboration bringing different and one of the most fertile areas in social innovation is actually bringing design thinking through organizations like Participal and um, think public into solving social problems. So, I think the sort of disciplines you're talking about should be applied. And I suspect there's rather a lot of rather woolly types of innovation going on that could be strengthened by some of the older disciplines. But it's not an either or to me. Anyway, mm.
6: no, thank you. can I just mention mm? something? I've just come back from the Congo, the DRC, where I was interviewing uh, women who have been subject to mass rape through conflict, but one of, the, I'm not going to talk about that now, but one of the most incredible things is, 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 it's a country in like almost political anarchy, there are no infrastructures at all, there's no legal system, there's no policing system, and it's full of um, no foreigners other than corporations and um, uh, militias, um, and the UN essentially, NGOs and one of the things that I found quite amazing was number 1 I got phone reception wherever I was I can't get that on Hampstead Heath. The other thing was that they were doing all of their banking through their phones, which has absolutely revolutionized um, how people are doing business within um, the Congo and within Africa. And when you start to look at the fact that they don't have television, they don't have radio, and they have no forms of communication, how do they mobilize so many people, thousands and thousands of people, into action when actually they have no infrastructure, right? And the infrastructure they do have, whether it's mobile, is actually quite dangerous to them as well, because there are a lot of political taboos. Well, they are innovating in ways that I could bring back, and people in England would say, well, you can't do that. You can't have the size of Europe, one country, and actually get a message across somewhere that actually has no digital power. So what they use are using incredible forms of traditional music and theatre to, to um, gather tens and thousands of people together. And I think the, the problem sometimes within our society is we get um, we get so used to the methods of how we work, we can't think outside of the box, we don't believe in a different reality, and I have to say I love what you were saying, because when you look at the transition towns, I'm not quite sure if you know the transition towns, which are popping up all over England, which the the British public are are, are, are forming small communities to teach themselves how to become sustainable it has absolutely no economic value other than lending each other skills um, and kind of sharing the food that they make, or sharing kind of workshop. This is actually happening without corporate interest. And what's so interesting about corporations is usually innovation does not start with investment. It actually... Can and is like Gandhi and Loganath and I studied with Loganath and one of the disciples of Gandhi who help um, uh, small untouchable communities pull together their land that they were gifted um, from their landlords to pull together in order to create one well for a whole community and they were off the um, economic route they were an alternative economic system and this was happening within and, and they, they uh, were educating themselves and they were trading with each other outside of... of, of um, um, outside of like the, the, the system, okay. right? I suspect yeah.
2: that hasn't placated you <laughs> particularly. So, did you did you want to make a point quickly in terms of how to encourage? Well, he's okay. handed
11: me to because he knows something about what I do. Okay. I think to kind of get involved with that right. question. Um, if I may, um, kind of speaks to everything everybody has been saying really, um, and the brain drain, which you kind of mentioned. Mm-hmm. I'm involved in the field. Um, if you've ever seen Star Trek, you know when somebody gets injured, they get into sick bay, they get a laser beam up, and they heal them instantly. When my company makes those. Um, we can't get it. not the toy ones, the real ones. It really works. It's not instant, but it's good. Um, I, God, where do you start? Uh, the the brain drain. So, for example, I was in a in a meeting in San Francisco, um, and uh, all the I was facilitating a, a conversation. All the dialogue was happening between the British people, but the interesting thing about the British people who were at that meeting, none of them had a job in England. Some of the top experts in this field, of funny how light interacts with cells, are, are Brits. And none of them work here, apart from me. And I'm just the one. And I might go to the States every month to kind of get involved in this thing. I got a, an email from DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, saying, oh, we want one of these things, we want one of these gadgets, the size and weight of a pack of cigarettes on every soldier's pack. Then they found out I was British, you know, they thought you know, ThorLaser.com, you know, must be American. Well, I wasn't, so they put, turned me down. They bought um, six systems from us, went to the US Navy, they're healing spinal cord injuries with them. I cannot get an audience in this country, mm. and all our talent is a, a raw
2: is that is that because there isn't an appetite from buyers or investors? Or
11: investors, investment is difficult, um, very nervous. Uh, I find really they want a very st- would be very clear about how this thing going to make money for them. I think that's part of it. Uh, medicine generally is conservative. Put on top of British conservatism, it's really difficult. I'm
2: but I mean, in, ter- in terms of the professional infrastructure, I mean he- the health. Uh, you know the, the, the healthcare system and um, you know health, healthcare companies. We have a large number of big
11: healthcare companies, pharmaceutical companies, pharmaceutical yes, but also yes, medical companies. make drugs that kill you. But medical uh, devices
2: companies <laughs> also.
11: So we get, our device gets um, more than double the amount of pain relief you'll get from non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for musculoskeletal pain, and yet uh, the the, uh, the clinical impact of of, of these drugs is, is minuscule, and they're equal. They, the rate of death caused by NSAIDs in the United States is equal to AIDS. So,
2: so what, should, what, should we, what should Britain be doing to encourage...
11: Um, one encourage of the problems is in universities, like universities like where the heads of department have to go to industry to get money. If you keep going back to the same industry because they've got all the money, you keep getting more of what they're already doing. If you want new ideas going to university, you're not going to get it from me because I'm not sorting it, sitting on top of a billion-pound company. So you're going to go to a billion-pound company. You're going to get more, you know, more of what you've already got. Uh, and the problem is universities don't get that much funding from government. And we need something more like DARPA.
10: Yeah.
0: Okay. So did you want to? Um, well, I was just thinking about this whole question about um, US uh, versus the UK. And perhaps it goes back to history and our education system. But I, I, my, my best ever project, I was sent off to California for three weeks to identify the coming trends. And I was very struck by the fact that. Uh, if you go in california and you've, you know people have spent time there the model is to suck in the best talent from the pacific rim and keep it to educate it as highly as possible and keep it in its academic institutions and what we have here is what seems to be a sort of old colonial model which is you educate people to and send them off around the world to dominate and uh, and to rule and i think we're still suffering from that in a way that we and also i mean just in terms of uh, the whole question of what makes a vibrant city. There was Richard Florida, uh, uh, the Economist, did the analysis of the US cities, which I'm sure, uh, the rise of the creative classes, and he identified that actually what you need is a, is a very uh, rich mix of the, 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 the bohos, I think he called them, and gay communities, and actually, if you can attract people from all over the world, you, you do create this innovative environment, the ecosystem that we were perhaps talking about earlier. So I think there's, there are all sorts of reasons why we do have a bit of a brain drain, that we do let people go. We, you know, we give them all these skills and they go off, and that perhaps is one of the reasons why our sort of creative industries are so fabulous at exporting our talent to other parts of the world. And I think if you're going to change that, you might need to do it rather differently.
7: Uh, I'm Sarah Churchwell. I uh, teach in higher education here. And I have been struck throughout the day um, in the way that people in the audience, and I'm, I'm, I'm touched actually in the faith that you all have in education. Uh, as an educator, I obviously have a tremendous faith in it as a process and as a system, but I'm also struck by the fact that I, I'm just wondering how many people in this room are aware that uh, since in the six months or so since Christmas, two successive ministers for well they keep changing their name but ministers who are in charge of giving universities money or not as the case may be um, have cut funding to universities in this country by almost a billion pounds since christmas and nobody's so everybody is saying oh well we need our universities are great they're treating everybody well no they're not and i was actually at a a, a totally different event talking to somebody very high up at cambridge uh, on thursday and somebody else came up to us and said so how are you guys doing with your budget cuts and he he looked at that person and said budget cuts budget cuts. It's catastrophic. It is catastrophic what is happening to universities right now. So I'm not suggesting anybody here can fix that, but I'm saying that as when everybody keeps coming around these conversations going, like, oh, but education, that'll sort it out. We, we innovated educa- universities. Well, not if we don't actually fund the universities. And, not, and I'm not saying that uh, I come from America. I don't think that universities have to be state-funded, but they have to be funded from somewhere. And uh, at the moment, you have a society that says that uh, students refuse to pay, parents refuse to pay, the government refuses to pay, and universities are, penalized if they try to bring in more students. Where's the money supposed to come from?
2: Thank you. I'm going to stop you there because Trust and Innovation is subject to my essay, so it's perfect timing. Thank you very much. Sorry to it to close. We will have coffee and we have to be on the buses by 3.30. So, drink up.